Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 19. I'm calling it the conditional clause for the resurrection. You'll find out in just a moment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, that he is risen from the dead. And because Jesus is alive, we can be alive. We can experience forgiveness and hope and grace and mercy and eternal life. And Heavenly Father, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would comfort the believer and you would confront the unbeliever and the make-believer. Lord, I pray for that person who has come here this evening and their heart is dark and empty and so full of darkness and despair. Lord, I pray that you would flood their heart with the knowledge that Jesus is in fact risen from the dead and because he's alive, he can forgive sin and give life in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have your Bible, you might want to turn to verse 12. And as I read, count the number of ifs in the passage. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how does some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now, Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. It was in April of 1973. Skip Heitzig and I were at Apple Valley High School. He had the morning class with Mr. Brimhall, who was our English teacher, and I had the afternoon class. And in the afternoon class, I was doing what I often do, which was disturbing the class. And Mr. Brimhall looked at me very solemnly and said, Mr. Geraci, will you please shut up? Do you think people will pay to hear you speak? It was like an awakening. I thought, are there jobs like that? And when I was considering this particular passage, my life went back in time and space to my English class because I was going to call this message the if 
of the resurrection. But then I remembered what my high school English teacher drilled into my head. Don't use a big word if a little word will do. But if is such a little word, it doesn't seem to do what it's supposed to do in this passage. In grammar, conditional sentences are sentences discussing factual implications or hypothetical situations and their consequences. And so I want to make sure that Mr. Brimhall gets a copy of this message. <laughs> you see, languages use a variety of conditional constructions and verb forms. It's called the conditional mood or the conditional clause to form different kinds of sentences. Full conditional sentences contain two clauses, the condition or protasis and the consequence or the apodosis. If it rains, that's the condition, then the sunrise service will be canceled. That's the consequences. Syntactically, the condition is the subordinate clause and the consequence is the main clause. However, the properties of the entire sentence are primarily determined by the properties of the protasis, which is the condition, and the tense and the degree of factualness. There, Mr. Brimhall, I remember. But contrary to Mr. Brimhall, the word if in verse 12 and the word if in verse 13 and the word if in verse 14 and 15 and the word if in verse 16, 17 and 19, these are gigantic ifs. And it doesn't seem to capture the magnitude, the volume, the dimensions. So... Sorry, Mr. Brimhall. I'm going to try to restrict using the conditional clause to just the beginning of our study. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, that's the condition, then Christianity is hopeless and pointless and empty and Christian messengers are lying when they speak about Christ's resurrection. Sin remains an unbearable burden and our loved ones are doomed and we are miserable. That's the consequences. In this chapter, in Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, he outlines a series of proofs for the believer's resurrection. Paul lists the historical proof in verses 1 through 11. And then he adds a personal proof in verses 12 through 19. And then a doctrinal proof in verses 20 through 28. And then a practical proof in verses 29 through 34. You'll have to remember that when Paul wrote this, it was the spring or the summer of 56. And I don't mean 1956. Paul is in Ephesus and he's writing this letter to the Corinthians, and the Corinthians, remember, are Greek for the most part, and they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Greeks mocked and laughed at Paul in Athens in Acts chapter 17, verse 32. The Greek philosophers taught that the body was, for the most part, a prison of the soul, and you could do easy time or you could do hard time. 
But sooner or later, the prison of the soul would die and the soul would be set free in death. And for that reason, many Greeks welcomed death. They believed that the person was better off and that the body was a source of weakness or the body was a source of pain or the body was a source of wickedness. And they couldn't conceive of a body and how it could possibly continue to exist after death. When I was here just a little bit earlier, it's been a long time since uh, I've lived here in Albuquerque. And some of you I've known for 20 plus years. And and so many of you, like me, have joined the ranks of the uh, mature. And people will talk about their hip replacement or their joint replacement. And I invariably ask them, is it still under warranty? And three score and ten, it isn't. Our culture, by and large doesn't believe in the resurrection. If CNN and the History Channel and the Science Channel and the Discovery Channel are any indication of the beliefs of mainstream America, they also don't believe in the resurrection. And if our contemporary culture and its television venue is any indication of what people really believe, the thought of people coming back from the dead is creepy to them. When they think of people coming back from the dead, they think of zombies. And so, modern culture and the scientific establishment weren't the first ones to protest the Bible's teaching concerning the resurrection. The protest began at the very beginning, and Paul knows that the entire fabric of Christianity stands or falls on the truth claim that Jesus rose from the dead as an actual, literal, historical fact. Otherwise, Jesus joins the multitude of failed philosophers and false prophets making extraordinary claims with no basis in fact. The resurrection of Jesus is the most important fact of human history or it is the most miserable hoax ever perpetrated on a gullible, vulnerable, ignorant, clueless people. And the doubt and the uncertainty lingers. Atheists, agnostics, skeptics continue to proclaim that Christianity is irrational and superstitious and absurd. But in moments of honesty, in moments of honesty, there are some of you who wonder if it's really true. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Is it true or is it false? A student at the University of Uruguay once asked my friend who has come here and spoken to you, Josh McDowell. He asked him this question, why can't you refute Christianity? And his simple answer was, I am not able to explain away an event in history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, Josh spent more than 700 personal hours studying the subject. And my friend Gary Habermas, he devoted most of his adult life and a Ph.D. dissertation to the subject of the resurrection of Jesus. My friend Gary Habermas reviewed every piece of relevant information in German, in French, in Spanish, in English that has been written over the past 1,000 years providing an in-depth look at the Bible's record of the resurrection. Quite literally, he probably knows more about the resurrection of Jesus than any living human being. The facts are well known. 
A Jewish rabbi claimed to be Christ. He claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the fulfillment of more than 200 ancient prophecies spanning a 1,500-year period. The prophecy said that he would be born of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then Judah, that he would come from the house of David, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be born of a virgin, that he would live the most amazing life that has ever been lived, that he would say the most amazing things that have ever been said. He would open blind eyes and deaf ears and bring the dead back to life. And clearly, he did have the most remarkable life. He was arrested. He was judged a political criminal. He was crucified. And the facts surrounding his trial and execution are one of the most heavily detailed events of antiquity. Dr. William F. Albright, who is considered the world's foremost expert on biblical archaeology, wrote, quote, We can already say emphatically that there is no longer any solid basis for dating any book of the New Testament after A.D. 80, two full generations before the date between 130 and 150 given by more radical New Testament critics of today, unquote. Couple that with papyri discoveries, 24,000 manuscripts or partial manuscripts, not to mention now close to 30,000 Latin manuscripts. The entire book of Luke and Acts, Sir William Ramsey spent 15 years of his life to refute the internal reliability of the content of those two books, Luke and Acts. He devoted his life to trying to prove that the writings weren't true or consistent. At the end of his study, he said, quote, Luke is a historian of the first rank. This author should be placed along the very greatest of historians in antiquity. Ian Blaylock wrote, quote, I claim to be a historian. My approach to classics is historical. And I tell you that the evidence for the life, for the death, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is better authenticated than most facts of history. And so when Paul writes in verse 12, he says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Part of the point that Paul makes is the absurdity of the argument. For those who suggest that God cannot raise the dead, their argument has already been refuted. God has already raised Jesus from the dead, rendering the whole, rendering the whole argument Moot, which is different from mute. Mute means you can't hear. Moot means you've gathered all of the available information and all of the information still doesn't change the facts surrounding the event under question. That's the point that Jesus is, or that Paul has made at the beginning of, of chapter 15 as he outlines the reality of what it means to rise from the dead. Jesus has risen from the dead. R.A. Torrey, who was a close companion of of uh, D.L. Moody wrote, Why would the apostles use this as the cornerstone of their creed if the fact was not well attested and firmly believed? It was well attested. It was firmly believed. The Bible records that in the course of the death and the burial of Jesus, the Romans came and they placed a seal on the tomb of Jesus. Now remember, all people, whether you're an agnostic, an atheist, a skeptic, Everyone agrees that the body is gone. And you only have two options. His enemies took his body or his friends took his body. 
Does it make sense that his enemies would take his body? Particularly after he claimed that he would come back to life. That's why they posted the Roman guard there. Does it make sense that his friends would overpower the Roman guards in a duel to the death? Break open the seal, roll away the stone, and then pirate Jesus' body away. Is that the impression that you get of Peter, James, and John after the Garden of Gethsemane? Do they sound like empowered people ready to steal a body? I don't think so. The real question, of course, is can the dead come back to life? I'm going to ask you a question. Some of you already know the answer because you go to church here. What is the oldest book in the Bible? Some of you might think it's Genesis, but it's not. Hundreds of years before the book of Genesis was written, there was a book called the book of Job. And most scholars believe that Job predates Genesis by literally hundreds of years. And it was in the book of Job that we find Job asking the question in Job chapter 14, verse 14, If a man dies, will he live again? You see, the question is as old as people have been asking questions. And for clearly, Christ was preached that he's been raised from the dead. And so the resurrection story wasn't some afterthought made popular by wishful thinking. The message preached by Paul and the apostles was that Jesus, the Son of God, died for our sins. He rose from the grave for the purpose of forgiving sins, of satisfying God's justice, his resurrection providing glorious, irrefutable proof that God has accepted Jesus as the sacrifice for our sins. And so he begins by making the point, no resurrection, then preaching is pointless. In verse 13 he says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. In other words, Paul argues if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ's resurrection is a fallacy. Do you know what a fallacy is? There's several different options. Number one, a false notion. That's a fallacy. Number two, a statement or an argument based on a false or invalid inference or premise, we might say. Number three, incorrectness of reasoning or belief. It's, it's the product of erroneousness. And number four, it's the quality of being deceptive. Depending on the circumstance, that would fit the notion of a fallacy in each case. And so in verse 14 it says, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. That's what Paul says. When we deny the resurrection of Christ, it means that our faith is vain. The word empty means groundless, meaningless. It means without substance. If God did not raise Jesus from the dead... That means that Jesus is still dead and that he shares the fate of all dead people. He didn't conquer death because a dead man cannot save other dead people. A dead man can certainly not help the living. And so he says in verse 15, or at the end of verse 14, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. 
That means without substance, without ground. It has no value. And I want you to think for just a moment of all the preaching that this earth has ever heard. Think of Noah preaching for 120 years to escape the coming judgment. Think of Noah preaching over and over again, begging people to flee into the ark of safety and to avoid judgment. Think of Jeremiah, his head a fountain of tears as he cries to the children of Israel to repent of their sin, to turn from their iniquity and their wickedness, to avoid the upcoming persecution and deportation that is about to take place. Think of Jonah walking through the streets of Nineveh telling them that they're just moments away from annihilation. Think of the preaching of Jesus. Think of the preaching of Peter. Think of the preaching of Paul, of Martin Luther, of John Wesley, of Spurgeon. Think of every sermon that's been ever preached by Billy Graham. I know, is this getting a little hot? Maybe I should just stop for a moment and do a canned sermon of Billy Graham. Ruth, get my teeth. I'm on TV. No, I'm just kidding. I just, I love Billy Graham. He's my Facebook friend. But think of all of the preaching. You hear it on your radio programs here. Think of every sermon you've ever been heard preached by Rawl. And the Bible is true. I'm telling you. My brothers and my sisters, it's true. <laughs> when Skip and I were in India with Raul, Raul is preaching, right? I love that. He's, he's going, And then Paul received the bishop from the man from academia. <laughs> and the guys in India are going, We are so sorry, but we are not understanding brother Raul. <laughs> I go, it is no problem. I will translate for you. He said Paul received vision from the man from Macedonia. And they go, we understand you, brother. At the beginning of chapter 15, Paul preaches Jesus died for our sins in verse 3. Look what it says. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. Verse 4, that he rose again. And verse 5, after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to a fairly significant number of people, including Simon Peter in verse 5, 500 people in verse 6, James in verse 7, Paul in verses 8 through 10. And when Paul says, then last of all, he was seen by me. Also as by one born out of due time. That expression, born out of due time, is the Greek phrase, ek tro, mati. It means prematurely. It's as if he is basically saying that There is this promise that has been given to the Jewish people, but like a stillborn or a newborn or a premature baby, Jesus revealed himself to to Paul as well. And here's his argument that these witnesses are sufficient in number and integrity to validate the fact that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Imagine the shock of headlines around the world on CNN and and Fox News and every news outlet, if every pastor, if every preacher, if every priest who denied the bodily resurrection of Jesus decided to do the right thing and resign from their job. 
According to Barna Research, in 2000, there was a poll of Christian leaders that revealed that 33% of the leaders affirmed that Jesus was crucified, but not physically resurrected. A prominent sociologist showed that many Protestant clergy and mainline denominations doubt or deny the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. Among American Lutherans, 13%. Among Presbyterians, 30%. Among American Baptists, 33%. Among Episcopalians, 35%. Among Methodists, 51%. If John Wesley could hear this, he would roll over in his grave. But thank God, he's in heaven alive. So Jesus, you tell them. (laughs) According to this survey, over half of the female clergy did not believe in a physical bodily resurrection. Do you know what I think the other half should do? Quit their job! Does it make sense to you to go to a church that doesn't really believe the truth about the gospel? They open up their Bible, they play a religious game, but it isn't true. And no wonder at the end of verse 14, Paul writes appropriately, and your faith is also empty. You know, a false faith can be greatly enlightened, according to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. A false faith can reform the outward man, but it can't change the human heart. A false faith can speak very well of great and noble Jesus. A false faith can confess sin like Saul. A false faith can have outward signs of sackcloth and ashes like Ahab. A false faith can feign sorrow like Esau and Judas. A false faith can be very, very sorry. The Bible says that Herod was sorry. That he promised his dancing daughter-in-law whatever she wanted, and she wanted John the Baptist's head on a platter. Judas was sorry that he betrayed Jesus. Herod was sorry and he killed someone. Judas was sorry and he killed himself. A false faith is capable of diligent works like the religious leaders. A false faith can go to church. A false faith can even go to this church. A false faith can come along with a husband or a wife or a friend. A false faith can enter into the doors of the sanctuary and sing the songs, but they don't really believe the truth that Jesus is risen from the dead. Os Guinness said, if faith, if faith does not dissolve doubt, doubt will dissolve faith. Oh, but I have doubts. And your doubts are eating away at you, eroding your confidence. Andrew Murray wrote, feed your faith and starve your doubts to death. Do you know how you feed your faith? It's when you open up the Bible. It's when you believe the promises. It's when you embrace the faith. We need faith to be saved. Remember the Bible says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any person should boast. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Jesus said, according to your faith, let it be done to you in Matthew 9, 29. You should have to have faith to please God. It says, but without faith it's impossible to please Him. That's what it says in Hebrews eleven six. You have to have faith to be kept and to commit your soul to God. 
God, Paul wrote, For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I committed to him against that day in 2 Timothy 1.12. That day that he's talking about in 2 Timothy 1.12 was fast approaching for him because in a few weeks or months he was going to be released from the prison and he was going to be taken to a Roman chopping block and his head was going to come off. If all this is true, it takes faith to be saved. It takes faith to answer prayer. It takes faith to please God. It takes faith to be a Christian. No wonder Paul says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then yours is an empty faith. And so in verse 15 he writes, yes, and we're found false witnesses of God. Because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead do not rise. Paul is not living a dream. This isn't some pie in the sky in the sweet by and by. Paul is extremely aware of the consequences if what he says isn't true. And by the way, Paul wrote 14 of the New Testament books. If Paul fabricated his testimony, if he lied, he, w- he either was deceived or he willingly and knowingly set out to deceive the people and his readers. One third of your New Testament becomes an unreliable source. John on the island of Patmos heard Jesus say, I am he that lives and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever, amen, and I have the keys of hell and of death in Revelation 1.18. Peter testified that Jesus was alive. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. That means made us born again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Stephen, who was a deacon in the early church, who's described in the book of Acts as being full of the Holy Spirit, looked up steadfastly into heaven, it says, and he saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, it says in Acts chapter 7, verse 55 and 56. Paul's premise, no resurrection. All the people who testified to seeing Jesus alive from the dead, they're liars. Paul is a liar, and Peter is a liar, and John is a liar, and Stephen is a liar. But just the opposite, Paul said, I saw him. Peter said, I saw him. John said, I saw him. Stephen said, I saw him. And the Discovery Channel and the History Channel and National Geographic says, we didn't see him. And you expect me to believe you over them? You know, I recently read the story of Bernard Reichel. He's a famous conductor who was preparing a great choir to sing the Messiah. And at the last practice, there was a lady soprano with the most beautiful voice singing a solo. And she was singing the song, I Know That My Redeemer Lives. And her intonation was wonderful and her voice was as clear as a bell and she had enormous talent and it was said after she finished singing many were almost breathless but the famous conductor said at the last practice to the talented lady do you really believe what you're singing and the woman said white sir with all my heart i believe that my redeemer lives and reichel the great conductor admonished and said then lady Sing. 
Sing is to make me believe it. Sing it so as to make the whole world believe that Jesus lives. Now take it again. And she began to sing, but this time with a living Redeemer filling her body and filling her soul and filling her voice. And she sang with her eyes on the Lord, with her soul absorbed with His presence. And she sang and hearts began to break and tears began to flow. And in the midst of this great conductor cried out, I believe it, I believe it. I believe it. And your worship team can sing and ask you to believe it. And I can preach and I can ask you to believe it. But I know that if I can talk you into it, someone a little more clever than me can talk you out of it. It is a supernatural work of grace brought on by the Holy Spirit. Do you believe it? Do you believe the testimony of the witnesses past and present? And in verse 16, Paul writes, For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. In verse 17, it says, And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. You know what Paul does? He says, Not only... Is your faith futile? But if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, then the wickedness, the iniquity, the sin that separates you from you and your God, it's still in your heart. It's still on your soul. There's still a judgment and there's still a recompense. And some might argue, but Jesus still died. He died. He died for sins. Yes, He died for sins. Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection. And if he didn't really rise from the dead, Paul knows the truth that he is a liar. And a liar is not a suitable candidate for the Savior. And so Paul won't even enter into the debate. He makes it clear. If Christ isn't risen, yours is an empty, a hollow, a worthless faith, and you're still in your sins. Perhaps you want to be saved, but you question whether or not that you can believe in a true, literal, bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I have a friend who's a pathologist. He has an earned PhD in pathology. He's also a medical doctor. He went through four years of college, four years of medical school, a residency, and then he quit his job. And I said, why did you quit your job? And he says, I don't like being around sick people. (laughs) So he went back to school, he got a PhD in pathology, and now he's with dead tissue and he loves it. (laughs) Corpses, dead tissue, he loves it. And I said, out of the thousands of cadavers that you've ever worked on and the tens of thousands of dead tissue samples that you've handled, how many times in your experience have they ever come back to life? And he said, never. And I said, sir, you're a Christian. Why do you believe in the resurrection? And he said, I believe by faith that God raised Jesus from the dead. In verse 18 it says, Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Not only are you still in your sins, but everyone that you love is also in their sin, particularly if they've died and they've already gone to hell. 
This last August, my father died. And your pastor came out and uh, was with me at my father's funeral. My father was a very funny man. He loved to watch CSI, particularly CSI Miami. There was one particular episode where someone had dumped a a body in the swamps, and my dad goes, "Do, do you know how hard it is to trace DNA through an alligator's intestines? And I go, Dad, how, how do you know that? Oh, well, no, no, never mind. No body, no crime. Okay. One of the saddest days of my life was doing a funeral several years ago. A woman tragically lost her daughter in a to a childhood disease. And at her funeral, the mother was inconsolable. I talked about life and I talked about love and I talked about the reality of Jesus, how Jesus loves you and how Jesus died on the cross. I talked about Second Samuel chapter 12, that horrible story about David and Bathsheba, how even in his wickedness, he had this horrible affair and she becomes pregnant and the baby dies. But, but David washes his face and he gets up and he says, the baby won't come to me, but I will come to him. And I talk. I told her everything that I could possibly say to her and she kept shaking her head no and she kept shaking her head no and she kept shaking her head no and after I said everything that I could possibly say to her she just looked at me and she said I don't believe you I guess I'm just going to have to bury my baby and pretend like I never had her That's despair. That's emptiness. That is a deep, dark hole that no one should have to experience. That's the point that Paul is trying to make in the passage. Paul argues that a false hope is no hope at all. But if Jesus has really come back from the dead, then Job's question is answered. What happened to Christ will happen to us. Not only is our resurrection possible, but it's certain. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, you know the story of Lazarus where Jesus is with his disciples and and they've been gone for several days. and, And Jesus says, we've got to go to Lazarus. And... He says that he's asleep. And the disciples said, well, if he's asleep, let's not bother him. And, and then Jesus said plainly, no, he's dead. And in Luke chapter 11, verse 21 through 26, you know the story how Martha, she's choked with tears and she's choked with emotion and she comes and she greets Jesus and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my my brother wouldn't be dead. But I know that even now, if you ask God, he'll do whatever he asks you to do. And And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And and Jesus said to her, no, no, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asked her this question. Do you believe this? She's not asked the question on Larry King Live. 
She's not asked the question on CNN. She is asked the question when the question matters the most. When someone you love... When someone you love, and you see, this is, the, this is the tragedy for the atheist and the skeptic and the agnostic and the unbeliever, because when the emptiness wells up inside of you, it's almost impossible to go through life, because if you go through life and you take the chance and you decide to love just even one person, whether it's your wife or whether it's your husband, whether it's your mother or whether it's your father, whether it's your daughter or whether it's your son, you decide to love them and you care about them, and then you have this unmistakable opportunity to explain about their life and you can't and the all you have is just the emptiness and Lazarus was dead he was four days dead and the stench of decomposition couldn't be masked even though they filled the place with spices and flowers And Jesus said, remove the stone. And I'll never forget, in the old King James it says, but Lord, he stinketh. (laughs) I was 16 years old when I first heard that passage. I was an unbeliever. I was at a Calvary chapel. And a preacher was preaching that passage. And when I heard the words... He stinketh. As clear as I can hear the laughter in this church, I heard a voice inside my heart say, You stinketh. (laughs) You know, adolescents always have trouble with deodorant. But it wasn't that kind of stench. It was the wickedness of a heart that had been lived in rebellion and disobedience against God. And I understood something for the first time. That if Jesus could take a rotting corpse and bring it back to life, that maybe he could save somebody like me. And I did the unthinkable, the unmistakable. I heard a person issue an invitation. I heard a person say, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, if you believe that Jesus is risen from the dead, if you believe that Jesus is alive and He can change your life, then come forward. And I did. I came forward and I received Christ as my Savior. Two weeks later, Skip Heitzig came over to my house. He always came over because he had a little tiny crush on my sister. And I started telling him about Jesus. And he grabbed me by the shirt and he pushed me up against the wall in my own bedroom. And he goes, don't you talk to me about Jesus. You're not even a good Catholic. I said, all the more reason. Think about that for just a minute. If Jesus can save somebody like me, He can save somebody like you. (laughs) Think about it. If Christianity were Amway, I would be a diamond dealer. (laughs) 
You know what? That's the difference between darkness and light. Emptiness and fullness. I wish, I wish, I wish I could convince you that what I'm saying is true. But I know that I can't. I know only that the Spirit of God can do that. So I'm going to pray that the Spirit of God would do exactly that. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person and within the sound of my voice. I pray for that person where the darkness and the emptiness and the loneliness and the wickedness is way more than they can stand. Lord, I pray for the person who lives in fear constantly because mom, dad, brother, sister, friend has died. And when they think about the emptiness and the darkness that that leads to, they have no answer and no hope. But Lord, I pray that they would embrace the hope that's found in Jesus. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would extend the invitation that was extended to me so long ago. Lord, I pray that you would speak to that heart. I pray that you would say that you're alive, that Jesus is alive, and that Jesus can forgive sin, and that Jesus can restore grace and mercy and hope and give a future. That life doesn't have to be empty and lonely and wicked and detached. That there's grace and there's mercy and there's hope even for someone exactly like me. So Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would speak to that heart. Lord, I pray that you would extend that invitation. And Lord, I pray that they would receive the invitation. I pray that they would say yes to the Holy Spirit, that they would say yes to love, that they would say yes to forgiveness, that they would say yes to hope. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.